It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with my friend Todd Wilson. Todd is the co-founder and president of the Center for Pastor Theologians. He holds a bachelor's and master's degree from Wheaton College and a PhD in New Testament studies from Cambridge University and is currently completing an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. He is the author or editor of over a dozen books related to Christian ministry, theology, and biblical studies, including The Pastor Theologian, Real Christian, and Mere Sexuality. He has over 15 years of pastoral ministry experience and most recently served for a decade as the senior pastor of Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, Illinois. Todd married his high school sweetheart, Katie, in 1997, and they live in Indianapolis with their, get this, seven children, three biological and four adopted from Ethiopia. I wanted to bring Todd onto the show to talk about his newest book, The Enneagram Goes to Church, Wisdom for Leadership, Worship, and Congregational Life. We did this interview before the book launched, so know that when we talk about it launching, it has already launched. So many people have been talking about the Enneagram and have wondered what to do with it. Does it have a place in church? If so, what does it look like? And how could it possibly help in ministry and congregational life? Well, these are just some of the things that we talked about, and I would encourage you to listen in as we talk about the Enneagram going to church. Happy listening. Todd, welcome to Apollos Watered. Travis, great to be on the show today, man. Thanks for having me. I am so excited about this conversation to get into it, to talk about your new book that is launching March 16th. Yes, yes. I'm excited as well. So before we get into that, though, let's get into the Fast Five. Uh-oh. Fast are, Five. Are you ready? That, that sounds... Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Mac <laughs> or PC? Mac, all the way. No brainer. Okay, Why? Uh, it's it's the perfect combination of aesthetics and functionality. Oh, that's a great answer. I like that because I'm, so a, I Mac, got that from I'm Steve, a Mac Steve, user. Yeah, Steve Jobs is uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, where he talks about how he had these aesthetic interests, and you know everything about a Mac is so elegant and beautiful, and it's so functional and easy to use. And right now, there were a lot of PC people yelling at this podcast. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I used a PC for a couple of years. My first pastorate in uh, in the Wheaton area, in Chicagoland area, uh, they had no Macs on staff. And so I, I it was my wilderness wandering for three years <laughs> using a PC. And the moment I was I was called to Calvary Memorial Church as the senior pastor, Travis, you like this, I exerted some senior pastor sort of prerogative and said, I'm getting a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, like you, I used to be a PC user and then I accepted Mac into my heart. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. I see that hand. I see that hand. <laughs> okay, number two, number two. Favorite brand of sneaker? Oh, well, that's a good question. Favorite, uh, Adidas. Adidas. Yeah, Why? I've got I've got some, I, well, I, I, I guess I just have them as a pair of running shoes right now. 
uh, sneakers and and they were they're 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 doing me right. Um, I, I feel like I'm fast with my Adidas sneakers, <laughs> <laughs> and I struggle to run anyway. So when I get a little help and I'm looking good, you know, running it's it, at least fifty percent of it's just looking good, Travis. You know. <laughs> You know, it's when you're a little kid, these sneakers make me run faster. And it's you don't exactly lose right. that as an adult, not no, even no, in middle no. age. No, no, I, I, I shouldn't confess this on your show, but I've got lights <laughs> in the bottom of my sneakers that light up when I run. You know, they, 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 they sort of sparkle. <laughs> okay, uh, next one. Here we go. Because I know after reading your book, you do talk about being a basketball fan. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're going you're gonna to quiz me about some basketball stuff, aren't you? Just well, just really quick. This is not, this is a general one. This is a general one. Here we go. NBA basketball today or the eighties and the nineties? Oh, well, that's easy. Eighties and nineties. You know, I came of age in the eighties and nineties, so it's got you know. I, I, Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James, and he always. Oh. I, hate, I hate to say that. I hate to say that. Oh, it's true though. It's true. It's true. It's true. So, okay, here we go. This is now this one. I'm not sure because I don't know you very well, but favorite hair band of the 80s. You know, Def Leppard hysteria. It, that just kind of warms my heart. I mean, when I get that on, <laughs> I, seriously, when I, I still I still pull that. You know, truthfully, Travis, I, I go through like these little music moments in the evenings where I'll just reach back for new kids on the block and I'll start swooning and do some new kids on the block or I'll do a little Whitney Houston for an hour or I'll do Def Leppard for an hour. Uh, so yeah, anyways, Def Leppard. Did you just say NKOTB? I mean, are you talking about new kids on the block? Oh, new kids on the block. You get my, you get my kids on the pockets. They'll tell you we have dance parties to new kids on the block all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't think, I mean, my kids, we've had some dance parties together. My oldest does not participate. She stands there is like the school marm at us, you know, as the chaperone at a dance. Like this is just not cool. Yes, just, yes. But I, I, I'm, I'm getting over pain from when I was in sixth grade. This is a true story. In sixth grade, I snuck out to like Karma Music and bought the audio tape back when they had audio tape. Some of the listeners won't, won't know what an audio wow. tape is. But I bought the audio tape of the New Kids on the Block. And my best friend, Chad, found my New Kids on the Block audio tape. And he told all of our other friends at school that Wilson had New Kids on the Block. And I just I, it took me at least a year, year and a half to, to live that down. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> I was wondering if that was the impetus of why you went so far educationally to earn respect back. <laughs> it's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, here's the last one. Last one of the fast five. What is one weird hobby or habit you your kids say you have? I <laughs> I cannot stand getting my hands and fingers dirty. So we just went on a date night, my wife and I, on Sunday night, and I got um, – the barbecue, uh, uh, the wings. And I asked for boneless so I could eat them with a fork. (laughs) It's just totally embarrassing. If I eat, if I eat fries, I have to like fiddle with my fingers and wipe the salt off after every bite of fry. It makes me totally crazy. So that's a weird sort of habit kind of uh, you know, almost a tick that I've got. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It's like Howie Mandel. He's a, is a, are you a germaphobe? No, I'm not a germaphobe. I'm just a 
finger food dirty makes me crazy phobe <laughs> okay okay it's so, that's, that's interesting i wonder what the name of weird. that is i wonder what the yeah, name yeah, yeah. of that is. it's got a name but let's get down to it so let's hear your story i mean I, I think if anyone knows about what you do you're the executive director of the center for pastor theologians but where did you grow up tell us about your family because i think you have a pretty unique story yeah, yeah. So I grew up in the northern suburbs of Indianapolis in a, a town called Carmel, Indiana. Uh, I grew up in a lovely non-Christian home. We never went to church or anything like that. I met Jesus when I was 16 years old. It was the Friday of uh, Christmas break, December 1992. And the girl that I was hanging out with that I was wanting to date her father said, well, let me talk to Todd and just have a man-to-man conversation. So we met at this McDonald's and he proceeded after some small talk, proceeded to share the gospel with me and drew out the Navigator Bridge illustration on the coffee-stained McDonald's napkin. And I met Christ through that gospel presentation. I left that McDonald's and was totally changed, radically, like Paul rode to Damascus sort of conversion. Um, and it was like a nuclear bomb going off in my family in many ways, because we were a very happy, very non-Christian family getting on well in the world. And next thing you know, I'm a Bible believing church attending Christian out of nowhere. And that was quite a deal. Um, so that that's a little bit of my background. Ended up going to Wheaton College um, as an undergrad, and as did the girlfriend whose father led me to Christ, who I ended up marrying before the end of college after our junior year at Wheaton. So we were one of those dorky couples that were a married couple our senior year in college. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, spent two years at, at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis as an intern and doing college ministry and doing the an apprenticeship program there, then back to Wheaton for graduate school, over to England for three years, did a PhD in New Testament studies, was thinking, Travis, uh, that God had called me to be a research professor because I was so loving the research and the writing. So, uh, but, but in God's providence, he ended up calling us back to the church where I interned in Wheaton, college church in Wheaton, uh, through, it was Kent Hughes was the pastor at the time, was in many ways a kind of spiritual mentor and, and, and father in, in many ways to me, um, <clears throat> and ended up back in pastoral ministry. But I, I share that just to say, um, I sometimes describe myself as an academic caught in a pastor's body. Mm. That's, a, that's a very interesting way to describe that. Yeah, because I love, I, since I became a Christian at the age of 16, you know, I failed my senior year of high school. I failed spring semester calculus, AP calculus, because I was <clears throat> sitting in the back of the class, not listening to the lectures about AP calculus, but reading Richard Tarnas's Passion of the Western Mind, A History of Western Philosophy. I was not a bookish, geeky guy. I was more like an, an athlete sort of party guy before I became a Christian, honestly. <clears throat> but when I became a Christian at the age of 16, the world of ideas opened up to me. And, and it was absolutely the most exciting, thrilling. I, I remember senior year of high school, I'm thinking about Aquinas' five arguments for the existence of God and Anselm's ontological argument and, and C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, all this kind of stuff. It was the most scintillating, incredible thing. So I had this passion for the life of the mind and learning and ideas kind of birthed when I became a Christian. Um, but as I grew as a Christian over time and had experience in the life of the church and was using my gifts, I think of kind of teaching, preaching, and leadership, I felt the Lord confirming that call to pastoral ministry and ended up landing in the church. But when I landed at college 
church in Wheaton. I was 29 years old. I was a newly minted PhD. I loved research and writing. And now I'm the associate pastor of adult discipleship at this large suburban church doing ministry training, men's and women's ministries, small groups, church planting, serving on the executive team on an, I mean, crazy, busy administrative leadership, all the rest of it. But I also had this passion for academics. And it was that kind of tension that I felt inside of me, that conflict of like, how do I reconcile these two very different impulses, passions, and worlds of church on the one hand and all the leadership demands that requires and academics and theology on the other hand, which I love. And that was how the, the Center for Pastor Theologians, my current work was born, was out of that sort of existential tension I was living with. Mm. And how long has Center for Pastor Theologians been around now? Well, it's been around, you know, roughly 15 years. Uh, we, I think Articles of Incorporation, I went to College Church in 2005. I met Gerald Heastan, my co-founder in 2006, whom you know, Gerald. Um, and, and in 2006, we, we founded it. We met in a caribou coffee in downtown Wheaton. We didn't know each other from Adam. And we were connected through actually Preston Sprinkle, who knew both of us. Um, if you know the name Preston Sprinkle yeah. and, uh, Preston, Preston, Gerald reached out to Preston and said, Hey, you got to talk to this Todd Wilson guy. Uh, cause Gerald had this idea from his time at Trinity where he was doing an MA in historical theology and he was learning about Jonathan Edwards and what pastoral ministry was like when all the pastors were viewed as theologians. You know, you mentioned David Wells earlier. This is very much a David Wells sort of theme and vision of the pastor as theologian which has been the model through the history of the church until the last 150 years or so. Anyways, Gerald had all this cooking and was talking to Preston about it. And then Preston said, well, you got to talk to this Wilson guy. And we met, had a caribou coffee, and the CPT was born at the caribou coffee about 15 years ago. So I, I, if you ever have an autobiography, it has to st- it has to be something like from McDonald's to Caribou and the center Cambridge and the Center for Pastor <laughs> yes, Theologians exactly. because that is that is just very unique with a man named Preston Sprinkle. I mean, at the yeah. same time, there's <laughs> just some very interesting pieces <laughs> to this whole thing. Now I want to go back to your Cambridge time there because I heard a story and I need I need to find out if this story is true. So you you were at Wheaton. You felt God calling you to go to Cambridge. But yet, if I've heard the story correct, you felt that you weren't supposed to be in debt. Is that right? Uh, well, I didn't want to be in debt. <laughs> I didn't want to be in debt, you know. Um, yeah, uh, for, for sure. So, of course, you did want to be in debt. Fair enough. That was a dumb question on my part. But here is so did you but if I heard this right, you raised an incredible amount of money. No, in a short no, no. period of time. No, no, no. I know. So I know a, another friend who did this. Uh, okay. I, I didn't. I didn't. I was. I was uh, f- very uh, blessed to two things really. One was to get some scholarships. I got what was called an overseas research scholarship, which turns my overseas tuition fee, which is huge, to a UK fee, which is not huge. And that was huge, <laughs> getting that reduction. And the other thing was both my family and Katie's family helped us uh, while we were in, in England. 
uh, in graduate school. And so that was the way we made all the pieces come together. And I had some other scholarships along the way that helped, helped us do, do things and bring all the pieces together. But that was, that was how we funded our education. Okay. Okay. Then that story that I received was completely apocryphal. So I I like that story almost better (laughs) than my story. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So you're at the center for pastor theologians. I mean, you've been a pastor and I mean, you're married how, and you said you and Katie were high school sweethearts. We were high school sweethearts. We've known each other since kindergarten. We carpooled to tennis lessons together in third grade. We went to the eighth grade Christmas dance together as dates. But but Travis, she was always the goody two shoes Christian girl at, at our school all through the years. And I was always the not goody two shoes party guy at our school. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, so so never the twain shall meet uh, until you know, we, we, I won't digress into how we actually started connecting our junior high school, but, um, she was so like, I, I think as the Lord was maturing me just emotionally and, and, in incognito in a lot of ways, I was longing for some more substance, even as a 16 year old, I just was thinking to myself, there's gonna be anyways. So I was very attracted to her because she is a four in the Enneagram. I think like you, Travis. Yeah. And so she's a, she's a huge feeler, incredibly uh, deep and substantive person and lovely human being. And I was just super attracted to her right from the start. Um, So yeah, so we married after our junior year of college. Uh, We've been married, we'll be celebrating, I think it's 24 years uh, this May. We have seven children, three biological and four adopted from Ethiopia, uh, ranging in ages from 20 18 and 15 are the three biological boy, girl, girl. And then the four adopted are 15, uh, fast approaching 16 boy, uh, 13 girl and two 12 year old twin boys. And we adopted the twin boys when they were infants, basically six months old. It was the first pair of a, a twins that our adoption agency had ever placed. So we were, that was thrilling for us. Um, and then the, the 15 year old and the 13 year old we adopted when they were seven and five. Uh, and they're a sibling pair as well. Do they remember their native tongue at all? They they did for a while, of course. But you know, when it, it, it's, it, it's actually it's a really good and, and interesting and complicated. We could do a whole podcast on yes, this on that, question. On yeah. Well, honestly, yeah, because um, you know, obviously, they, you know, they. I remember when we first adopted them, they would sit at the dinner table and 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 talk in Amharic, their native language. Actually, Tigrinian is their native language, but they also knew Amharic, the national language of Ethiopia. But anyways, they would talk to each other at the dinner table about the meal and about things in, in their <laughs> native tongue. And none of us could understand it, of course. Uh, all we could read was the facial expressions. But anyways, they, um, uh, they, they, I, th- I think there was a sense in which they were uh, ready you might say, or, or e- maybe I'll put this like eager to leave their their native language behind because they were eager to leave their orphan life behind. You know, and those two, of course, kind of hang together uh, in their own minds. And of course, they're busy learning English and being totally immersed in English, and we don't speak Amharic and so on and so forth. But um, there's just some interesting dynamics there. Uh, that we could digress on. No, but it's always fascinating to me to see those cultural elements and and integration into families and then to have so many kids and then to write a book about the Enneagram with such a large family. So let's let's talk about your book because your book, The Enneagram Goes to Church, I got a chance, uh, I I was given a copy uh, 
by IVP. We're very grateful for that, to be able to, to read the book. I was so delighted because my wife got into the Enneagram and I thought, Enneagram, Pentagram, what? what? Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it, the, the rhyming and then I saw the picture, but it's not that at all in any which shape or form. But what was the impetus behind writing this book, The Enneagram Goes to Church? Yeah, so the the impetus was first the introduction to the Enneagram, and I, I met the Enneagram through my wife's sister, Beth, who lives in Nashville with her husband and family, and she picked it up down there and was just intrigued. She's a therapist, so she kind of was, was interested in these sorts of things to begin with. And I saw her reading this book um, on the Enneagram, and, I, and I, you know, I said, hey, Beth, what's that? She said, well, it's the Enneagram. I said, Ennea, what? And then she showed me the cover of the book, and it had the the, the famous Enneagram diagram on it. I thought, yeah. that's Satan worship. What is my sister-in-law doing with that crazy stuff? <laughs> and she says, well, it's this personality typing system. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, okay, Myers-Briggs, I get it, okay. And then I said, well, tell me about it. And she starts explaining, well, there's the one, and that's a perfectionist. And, da, 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 da. and I said, well, do we know anyone? So she says, yes, my mother, your mother-in-law. Oh, wow. And then she kept explaining the personality types. And then I started looking around, A, at myself, B, my wife, our marriage, and then this large family of ours and the people I knew in this Enneagram personality typing system all of a sudden was making tons of sense of all of these people and relationships just like that, Travis, just like that. I mean, it's incredibly accessible. Um, you can pick up the Enneagram and the, its way of sort of viewing people very quickly. And that's what happened. It, this was about a day's worth of conversation with my sister-in-law. Got really excited about it. Katie and I, my wife, started sort of living with the Enneagram, if you will, trying it on for size, seeing how it fits. And it was fitting very nicely, right? We're making a ton of sense of our lives, our marriage, our interpersonal relationship dynamics and with kids. And then I thought, well, I wonder if this is going to be helpful with all these people I work with at this church that I pastor, right? And uh, starting with the staff. So I started trying out the Enneagram and the insights I was learning with the ministry staff in Calvary, where I was pastor, pastored for 10 years in Oak Park in Chicagoland area. It was a fairly large church, about a thousand people and, you know, you know uh, 10, 12, 15 staff. And I started just talking to them about the Enneagram and insights about my personality and how I interacted with them and who they might be and what that might mean for our interaction and for their role on the team and my role in the team and so on and so forth. And it was incredibly illuminating. And then I started thinking about my leadership style and how I approach preaching and how I approach pastoral care and where some of my blind spots are and where some of my weaknesses in ministry are and how the elder board responds to me when I do certain things, da 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 in light of my Enneagram type. And Travis, I just got to say, it kept every, you know, I was peeling the onion of personality and seeing the relevance and the insight it was giving me all over the place. One brief story that really solidified not just my love for the Enneagram and it's as a helpful tool for, for life and relationships, but for ministry in particular, we did each year a staff retreat where we take all the staff and their spouses away for three days. And it was a very low key, you know, time together. We would spend the mornings sort of like from eight to noon each day in a time of Bible study worship. And then we'd have a conversation about whatever, you know, we set for the conversation, Th you know, uh, this time, this, this uh, uh, time we had the staff retreat, I said, well, why doesn't everybody kind of get a little bit familiar with the Enneagram, try to figure out what your Enneagram type is, and then come and we're going to talk about it. And on day one, we're going to talk about this question. 
What is it like to be you? What is it like to be you? And we're all now going to use the language of the Enneagram, which will be a shared common vocabulary, and we're all going to listen to you describe what it's like to be inside of your head and how you engage the world, how you see the world. And Travis, I got to tell you, that was the most lovely, bonding, profound conversation for several hours. There were tears. There was laughter. There was so many, wow, aha, oh my gosh, yes. Um, and and what, it, what it surfaced for me is this old C.S. Lewis insight, which is really a theological scriptural insight. Everyone is dying to be known. Everyone is dying. Every podcast listener listening to this show right now is dying in the depths of their soul to be really known. And this is, of course, the offer of the gospel, not just to know Jesus, but you might say even more beautifully to be known by Jesus. And for us to be known by other people is so life-giving. And we could have a whole other podcast on this because I'm passionate about this theme of integration of ourselves as people. But the way integration and real spiritual growth and maturity happens is by being known more than knowing, by being known. If you want real healing in your life, you need to be known by other human beings and by God ultimately, but by other human beings. Anyways, so when that happened that morning, it was just like this tool is so potent and helpful. There's six, there was 14 of us around the circle, and it was just incredibly illuminating. The next day, though, Travis, it was really the coup de gras. It was the it was the it was the ace in the hole, it was a slam dunk. You know what we did next day? We asked the question, what is it like? to be married to you. <laughs> and, and that, you know, so think about that, bro. Think about that. You, you're sitting there next to your spouse explaining to all of your ministry colleagues and their spouses how you see yourself vis-a-vis being married to you with your spouse watching you and listening to you and everyone else knowing you and knowing something about your marriage and your life. I mean, of course, tears, <laughs> laughter, insight, bonding, intimacy. And, and here's the thing, bonding and intimacy, Travis. Do you want to, like, to all your listeners to this podcast, if you're on a ministry team, if you're on any kind of team, and you want to connect, bond, go deep together, I talk about in the book, on the chap- in the chapter on teams, I talk about getting naked with the Enneagram. Yeah, I remember reading that. I was like, right, okay, like, wow, it, where are we going with that's this? Right, that's right. It's it's being naked being naked and unashamed. Being naked and unashamed by talking about who you really are in all of your humanity in a shame-free way. Where I get to talk about I'm an aid in the Enneagram. I got to talk about what it's like to have a preternatural instinct for power which is a shameful thing in our culture. And so like, whoa, you do what? Or to talk about how there is molten lava anger underneath everything I do. There is? Boy, you got some, you got a real problem. Like, what's wrong with you, Wilson? Well, Nona, just sit with the Enneagram for a little bit and let's unpack that and what that means. Or my other, uh, our, our children's ministry director, her husband is this handsome, strapping, six foot five college swimmer amazing, lovely guy who said, who said when we were going around, what is talked about shame. He's a three in the Enneagram. He talked about shame 
and he talked about that. My wife, who's a four, she said to this person, I won't use his name, let's call him Fred. She said, Fred, do you just feel like in the depths of your soul that like people will finally find out who you really are and it really won't match up with who you want to be? And when she said that to him with a little quiver in her voice, because she felt it so deeply, he just began to weep in front of all of us. Because that so speaks to the reality of his experience. Here's the other fun thing, Travis. By the way, I've lost the thread of your question. I'm no. just kind of rant, ranting. No, that, this is fine. But I, I do have a, one of the questions. Like, what was the description that your wife gave of you being married to you in the Enneagram? What did she say? Yeah, she used the language of of um, intensity, bigness, uh, fun. Um, aggressive, action-oriented, always dreaming and strategizing. A lot of, so I, I, you know, depending on how you think about wings, I don't know how much, yeah. you know, obviously you're, you're uh, but if you, you know, I, I describe myself as an eight. I'm a def- definitely an eight through and through um, with a, I think in first half of my life, a seven wing. And now the second half of my life, I'm adding the nine wing. That's a kind of theory of how wings work that we picked up from Suzanne Stabile, which she's of the view that you have a wing first half of life, one wing, the first half of your life. And then somewhere around middle age, you take the other wing on, which is why most people get more balanced as they get older. They don't change their personality, but they balance their personality by having both wings in play in a, in a bigger measure. But all that's to say, in the early, first half of my life, I was an eight with a seven wing. So I was like, I was a very aggressive, very active, very energetic, fun, playful, adventurous person. And uh, so she she was using that kind of language to describe me. But she was also, because she knows me so well, talking about the... the uh, the hidden side of the eight, which is the tenderness of the eight, the vulnerability of the eight, you know, the eight personality structure exists to shield the eight from this incredibly tender, innocent child that is within the eight. Uh, and that's very much me, man. That is just so me. So that's what, that's how she described me. So going back for just a moment, because I know that many who are listening are familiar with the Enneagram. Some are not, but you talked about it being kind of like a personality typing system. But talk about the the number, because there are nine. I mean, let's just get into basics for a second. And what exactly is a wing when we talk about what is the wing to that number? Yeah, great question. So there's nine personality types and they're positioned, if you've seen the the image, uh, if listeners have seen the image, it's nine like on a clock, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine around the circumference of a circle. And so each number is next to two other numbers. And in Enneagram speak, when you talk about your number, you talk about are, are you a one or a two or a seven or a six or whatever. And then you talk about your wing. That is to say, as you reach out from your number, either to the right, as it were, or to the left, those are your wings, potential for wings. And wings are just ways of, it, you know, you might say it's, it's you're not that personality, which is your wing, but you draw on, you might say, the energy of that personality, some of the features of that personality type that, um, um, you know, uh, uh, fills out your personality. This is the thing that's that's lovely and powerful about the Enneagram is, you know, you've got these nine personality types that are, you might say, the primary colors, red, blue, green, you know, so on. Um, but there are, as we know about colors, there are 
billions of hues and shades and subtleties with each and every color. There's blue, and then there's like a jabillion blues, right? Right. And this is the way human personalities are. There is a pattern to personalities. So anybody who's listening who's a bit of a skeptic, like, well, I don't know about all this personality, blah, blah, blah. The truth of the matter is there are person there is a pattern to our personalities. And here's the thing, Travis. Some of us are alike. We're a lot alike. Some of us are similar. And some of us are just plain different. And the Enneagram leverages that basic insight to say, yeah, and that is the patterning of your personality. Um and, and how it works out. But the wings and then ways you integrate and disintegrate, and we can get into that, and, and subtypes, there's a whole layer, there's lots of layers to the Enneagram. Um, but that then adds, like if you're a blue, let's say, color in the Enneagram, it adds a lot of hues and tones and kind of tweaks to your basic blueness for whatever your number is. Now, let, let's go back again for because you've given a great description, but let's go back for a second. Where does the Enneagram originate? What I mean, you, you talk about all truth being God's truth, and I loved how you talked about that in the book because I've used that so many different times, no matter where it originates from. I mean, it can be from someone from the most worst background in the world, but yet if they invent a mathematical formula that is a, that is true, it's true no matter what your background is, and, and, and I think... When we talk about the Enneagram, I think of, I try to compare it to the love languages uh, just because we have these things that we've been created and, and have formed over time. And, and they're just basic ways of understanding the human makeup. But where does the, the Enneagram originate and how did it develop to where we got it to right now, where it's become such a, uh, I don't want to say a trend, but it is something that I see a lot of people not obsessed with, but really going into discovery. So talk about a little bit about that background. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I should probably just confess that I am, uh, (laughs) this may surprise you and some of your listeners, having written a book now on the Enneagram, I have not spent that much time researching and digging into the history and development of the, of the Enneagram, to be perfectly honest. I know there's a ton of interest in that, and particularly from uh, uh, Christians that are anxious about the Enneagram because we have a mental habit of, of questioning things because of the origin of that thing. Like, where did it come from? And if it comes from some unknown or suspect place, therefore it's suspect. I reject that actually premise, right? I mean, insights can come from Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheistic German philosopher, and still be fantastically true and useful for living and for Christian theology, actually. And it doesn't matter that the atheistic German philosopher came up with them. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter the derivation, but it is the direction to which the insights are put. That's what makes it Christian. Something is not Christian because a Christian came up with it. Christians can come up with a bunch of junk if it's not Christian at all, as we know. What makes it Christian is the ends to which you put the insight or the idea. Mm, That's a great point. So I say all that, Travis, to say I have not spent a ton of time, and I don't have much emotional investment, to be honest, in the origins of the Enneagram. I, I mean, I can tell you a few little anecdotes and things that I've picked up from a lot of the reading I have done. You know, it's some people trace it back, the, the image itself, to Desert Fathers in third and fourth century. And I think there is something to this idea of the seven deadly sins. There are seven driving passions plus two that comes up with nine passions that sort of shape the human soul in different ways. And 
There's something in the Christian tradition about that that may have influenced the development of the Enneagram. I think the modern uh, use of the Enneagram um, comes from uh, thinkers in this, I think, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Gurdjieff and Caso and, and, and others that were, um, um, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the psychology world uh, and were not Christians themselves. Um, and I, to my, my sense of the sort of genealogy of it and how it got injected into mainstream evangelical Protestantism in North America and now is through the Catholic tradition and Catholic community. And, and, I, and I, I, I think Richard Rohr and others were very influential here in the 80s and 90s, injecting it into the Catholic world. And then I think more mainline Protestants brushed up next to it. And then really the game changer for evangelicals was when Suzanne Stabile and Ian Morgan Crone published their The Road Back to You uh, uh, several years ago with a reputable, well-known evangelical publisher. And, and it really kind of went boom at that point. I mean, that book was a, is, I think, still a bestseller um, and has influenced tons and tons of evangelicals. Now, the question is, why are evangelicals so interested in the Enneagram? And I have I, 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 I've heard, you know, more skeptical dispositions talk about this and cynical. Disp- they will say things like, yeah, it's just faddish and it's trendy or the therapy, the triumph of the therapeutic or the narcissist bent of people, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. I want to take a more positive read on that. And my positive read is goes back to something we said earlier, which is. Uh, people these days, evangelicals include, but everybody in our culture, is drowning in information and starving for wisdom. Oh, totally, totally agree. And the wisdom they feel so hungry for is the wisdom about what it means to be human and what it, how to interact well with other human beings. And so I think tools like the Enneagram come along and people lay hold of them just like they do strengths finders and, and Myers Briggs a generation ago and so on and so forth. People are dying for insights into this. I mean, I don't think it's just, well, we're kind of narcissistic people and we just love talking about ourselves, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't get that. I mean, I think we do like talking about ourselves, but I don't read it so cynically as some folks would. I think there's more kind of, um, there, there's really good aspirations there. And, and bottom line is, I think we love any tool that will help us be known, Travis. I'm preaching at you now, brother, but yeah. anything that can give us a vocabulary to unpack our souls so that we can have another person look us in the eyes and say, I get you. I see you. That makes sense about how you see the world. That is so life-giving to us. That's life-giving. The Enneagram is giving people that ability to be known by other people in a really deep, compassionate, meaningful life-giving way. And, and, and to add to that, because I, I think about how people want to be known, but I also think that, I mean, you and I have been in ministry for a long period of time, and we know that it, rarely do people separate because of theology. I mean, people do, but oftentimes it's because of personality, it's conflict, right. it's perceived you know, slights. This helps you navigate the waters through conflict and interpersonal communication because people are coming at the argument from a totally different perspective That's of, of their personality, of what they value. I mean, even with my wife, my wife is a three wing four and I'm a four wing three. 
and yes. it, and it, it, you know, trying to describe our marriage. And I, you know, I was trying to figure out what words she would use. And I think I came to the conclusion in describing being married to me, she'd say, it's like taking a popcorn popper on a roller coaster, um, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know, because it's up and down, it's adventurous, it's deep, <laughs> totally. you know, but it's, it's got movement within the movement. And, uh, but yet there's the depths of the emotion and, but you see that. And when we argue, Sometimes when I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I know she's a three. This is why she's saying this. And this is why I'm saying that and why it's such a value to me. And that's a value to her. And it helps us to de-escalate the situation as a married couple. And I see the same being applicable in church. And that's what I love about your book. And I'm talking, as you're talking about applying to the Enneagram to church, you, you really do a great, I mean, you're looking at it as a pastor yes. saying preaching staff, congregational worship, and then you get into the subcategories and triads and, and I mean, being a preacher and I'm, I'm listening to this going, okay, you have the Enneagram personality of the preacher and the church often takes on that personality. Yes. And and then though when you started talking about preaching to the different personalities. Yes. And, and I was sitting there going I and, and I was recalling in my head and some people will be familiar with this but Brian Chapel's fallen condition focus. So I'm like that was hard enough doing the fallen condition focus but now I'm doing a fallen condition focus on how it is exhibit itself within the nine types. Now that can be a bit exhausting but yet immensely rewarding. And yeah. how does that really influence your preaching. I mean, I don't think all of us can sit down and go, okay, this part for this personality is going to be this. And then for a a two, it's this and this, but how do you at least keep that as a influencer or a a helpful grid to preach? I mean, what, what do you suggest with that? And you do bring this out a bit in the book, but just elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not meant to I mean, you're exactly right. It can be, uh, in a sense, overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, I'm preaching to potentially nine different personality types, and what do I do? I have to get out a, a pad of paper and sort of say, well, what application goes to which type? And you know, I mean, all of a sudden, it becomes overwhelming and unruly. The bottom line with it, Travis, is to raise the self awareness and others' awareness of the preacher, because preachers want to communicate effectively. And effective communication, I'm not trying to bracket out the power and presence of the Spirit at all from this, so I don't want to make this overly human-centered, but let me just say, effective communication relies upon um, the the communicator being self-aware and being others-aware. Like, who are these people, and how are they going to hear things? And part of the, the, uh, the benefit of applying the Enneagram to all this is realizing you have a particular communication style given your personality. You speak in certain sort of ways. You approach communication in certain kinds of ways. You actually use your body in certain kinds of ways, all a function of your personality. And so, too, there are listening styles, not just communication styles, but listening styles for everyone in the pew sitting in front of you. Um, so again, that can be overwhelming. Like, Whoa, that's way too much information, Wilson. There's no way I can sort of take that on board. But I think, I think part of it is just raising your awareness, self and others awareness, and then trying it out. And in particular, paying attention to where you're getting positive response and where you're getting some pushback on your preaching or some, uh, you know, it's not working so well. Mm. So for me, um, you know, (laughs) I remember (laughs) a colleague who said, Wilson, when are you ever going to preach just a kind of normal sermon? 
You you never <laughs> preach a normal sermon. <laughs> What's a normal sermon? That's what, what my he first meant was well, Travis. What what he meant by that was a normal sermon is a hey. I just want to remind you this morning that Jesus Christ is risen. He loves you, and he died for your sins on the cross. And there's new life in Jesus. And isn't it fabulous that God loves us this way? Wilson, who's the aide in the Enneagram, you, you can just imagine how I preach every time. It's contra mundo. It's it's again, it's like you have heard. I mean, he teased me. He said, he said, you 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 pull a Jesus every Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Seriously, Travis, this, I is, what made, you. this is what made preaching exhausting <laughs> for me is I could not help. I was imprisoned in my personality without as much self-awareness as I wanted. Every sermon was a gigantic argument that is going to be revolutionary in the way people think about whatever the text is or the phrase is or the theological issue or the cultural issue. Every sermon, which was a great strength, I think, of my preaching, if I can say that which is, it was usually pretty interesting and pretty, I mean, I think pre people would say over the years, like, wow, Todd, I'd, I'd have very mature Christians say, I've never seen that text that way. I've never thought of that passage. You know, blah, blah. That would be a regular repeated for refrain. But it was very hard for me to just calmly and gently say nothing new or provocative or controversial in the sermon, but just affirm and remind people of the love of God. Because I'm an aid in the Enneagram. And I needed to balance that out. I was way too much eight <laughs> in excess in my sermons, just way too much eight in excess in my sermons. So that's that's one thought. Um, I, I, I share a story in the book about how I, um, I preached on um, uh, Philippians 3 and Paul's famous, uh, uh, you know, counting... Um, 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 uh, his his righteousness, right? Not not putting not putting much stock in his own self generated righteousness. And I preached my heart out on that text, that famous text out of Philippians three. And someone who knew the Enneagram bounced up and said, "That's a that's a sermon for threes." Yeah, I remember that in the book. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. I never even thought about that. But she was right. The way I preached that, Travis, the fall, fallen um, condition focus. Um, did I get that right? The Brian Chapel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the FCF, yeah, the falling, falling condition focus. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm an eight. And so I get like achieving and striving and working and earn. I mean, I get all of those impulses. And so I went to this text. I saw that as the most salient application and message of the text. That was the obvious thing to apply to the congregation and sort of unpack the psychological dynamics of this striving, earning, achieving impulse. But by the way, that's not everyone's main driver in life, right? That's not everyone. I mean, other personality types don't get out of bed in the morning figuring out how they're going to dominate the world and prove their worth in the world by achieving. They just don't. I, you know, and I'm fully aware that there's something sort of, you know, to, to, to draw on Luther here and the, and the reform tradition. I fully understand for listeners. They're like, wait a minute, there's a self-righteous person in all of us. I totally get that theologically, right? I mean, I totally get that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, eights and threes and fours and sixes and ones and twos, they are oriented differently vis-a-vis -vis their own doing in the world, their own achieving, their own accomplishing. Nines don't quite have the same sort of self-justifying drivenness that a three does. They just don't. And so all of a sudden being aware of that and thinking, wow, how would I preach this famous passage from Philippians 3 to 
all the all the doing repressed people in my congregation, namely the nines, the fives, and the fours. Wow. Maybe I wouldn't do, do preach it exactly the way I preach it. Maybe I would add another layer to the way I preach it. So that those, those are the kind of ways it can help you. So uh, taking that, not just from a preaching standpoint, but you also talk about it in the realm of shepherding, which I thought was very unique. And having, again, been in churches for a long period of time and seeing how people have certain expectations of the pastor, a church would benefit from this book, just the normal person sitting in the pew, yes. because it would help them, I think, to also be more patient with their pastor and how they go about shepherding. Because I remember when I first started in pastoral ministry, I had a pastor and I would say he was, I don't know what he was on the Enneagram. Um, he extremely compassionate. He was steady. He was scheduled. He was in at the same time every day, out yeah. for lunch every day. But if he wasn't a theologian, he wasn't a great thinker. He wasn't really a charismatic personality, yes. but he cared for the people and, and they knew that. And they would be, yes. they would overlook some of the other things or someone would say deficiencies because he was such a great shepherd. And then I came yes. along and people expect me to be the same shepherd. And I, I wasn't as much of a shepherd, but I was a much better preacher just from yes. the sheer force of personality. Cause I'm very emotional. I can shout, I can cry. I can, I can, I'm a storyteller by nature. So it, it, but it, it lends you to be more patient, not just with them as a preacher, but them as a shepherd. So talk to that just for a, a, a moment. I, I just, I, I so this, I just am burning inside with this one in a good way, like, like yearning for listeners and congregations and congregants to grab a hold of this. Mm. We have, when we hear the word pastor, we have a certain image perception or yeah. image in our minds. And Travis, it is inextricably bound up with a certain, a particular personality type or yep. types that is not every pastor's personality type. And you, you described it like this lovely guy who was your pastor, who was a shepherding guy. Da, 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 da. And I think we would say, both of us would say, yeah, like he was a real pastor. Is <laughs> what yeah, we'd be yeah. tempted to say. Exactly. But you and me, you and me, we're not real pastors. We're like something else. We're good communicators <laughs> or good leaders or good whatever. Travis, this is a very painful lesson for me. I'll never forget a, um, a congregant came to see me. She was upset. Uh, I'd been at the church at Calvary for probably four or five years at this point. Made a lot of decisions, a lot of change, a lot of this, a lot of that. And she sat down and at one point in the conversation, she looked at me and she said, you know, Todd, Pastor Todd, when we called you, we thought we were calling a pastor. Mm. Oh, that hurts. That, that, I can laugh about it now, but that was, it was not funny at the time. But, it, but uh, you know, and there were, there were a variety of, no doubt reasons why she said that. And, and, uh, I've had to sort of sit with that and digest that and ask the Lord to, um, teach me through that pretty humbling thing for someone to say to you as a pastor. But, um, I don't know that I actually, I was sitting in a, in a, in a, um, pot belly, uh, having a sandwich, sharing a sandwich with a, with a guy who, um, was very involved in our church and had been at our church, for, he'd been at our church for years when, then when I came, um, and he said to me, you know, he's leaving the church because I just wasn't, you know, pastoring is really about shepherding, he said to me. It's really about caring for people. And Todd, you just, that's not really you, he said to me. It's not really you. 
And, and I got a lot of that over the years. And a lot of it, Travis, is because I'm an eight in the Enneagram yeah. as a yeah. pastor. I am strong, aggressive, forward-moving, visionary, bold. And I don't mean this as compliments. I really don't. I hope listeners aren't thinking, he's just stroking his own ego. Not at all. I'm just trying to describe who I am and my personality and the way I'm wired. What I'm not is I'm not gentle, patient, calm, tender, like easily tender, thoughtful, a lot of those. My colleague whom you know, Gerald Heastan, and co-founder of the CPT, after, two years after I'd got to Calvary, I, he, we hired him. He came. We called him. And he was my senior associate pastor for eight of my 10 years at Calvary. And he's a nine in the Enneagram. He is a consummate pastor. <laughs> he's a pastor. I used to tease him, and I would tease the elders. I'm saying, I'm saying, you all like Gerald better than me, anyways. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and truthfully, Travis, truthfully, no, this is this is no joke. This is no joke. I said to the elder chair when we were talking about hiring Gerald years ago. We had him uh, years ago. Remember, we worked for eight years together. I said to him, "Listen, elder chair, we got to hire this guy." And sooner or later, I will transition on from Calvary, and he should become the senior pastor. And that's what happened. Because I knew, I, like, or sometimes I describe myself, I'm a better leader than I am a pastor. Mm. And it's largely by virtue of my personality and the gifts that that brings me and the weaknesses that I have because of my personality. Because of my personality. Gerald is incredibly long-suffering with people. He can patiently nurture people, it's absolutely a marvel to behold. He is such a calming presence. He sees, just like nines, he sees everything from every angle and is such a mediator and a gracious presence with people. I'm not. I'm not. I, I want to get the right answer. I want to push to conclusion. You know, uh, I, I have a hard time being patient with people's weaknesses and vulnerabilities. It's what I despise about myself as my own vulnerability. And so just by virtue of my broken personality structure, that's what I have a hard time with with other people. And that is that can be an asset in pastoral ministry and leadership, but it can be a challenge as well. Well, that was the first part of our two-part conversation, and we really do get into the Enneagram even further and try to figure out what layer that takes. I mean, how many other different tests are there? Is this just a fad? Or should it be one of the necessary pieces of wisdom that others have gathered over the years that we are to implement into our ministries? I would encourage you to join in next week and listen in as we continue this discussion as we examine the Enneagram and how we might be able to apply it into church and the opportunities as well as the possible setbacks there could be if we were to do so. And I wanted to give a shout out to Kathy Brothers, the best sponsor there is of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to give Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate a call. She comes with years of experience and loves her clients. I know because I am one of them. She sat down with us, found out what we were looking for, and then presented us with the best options for us. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help and find your next home. I would encourage you to give her a call or text today at 630 630- 
630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. And I also wanted to let you know about our next men's retreat at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp. It's our Apollos Watered Men's Retreat taking place from April 23rd, which is a Friday night through April 25th, Sunday morning. And we're learning what it means to bloom in our modern day Babylon. How do we equip ourselves to follow Jesus in the midst of this quickly changing world? We're going to open the word of God together. We're going to have a time of fellowship and worship. There's going to be merchandise and just simply getting to know one another and sharpening one another so that we might continue to fulfill the purpose for which God has made and purposed us. You can sign up at phantomranch.org slash events. That's phantomranch.org slash events. And if this is a ministry that you find yourself resonating with, and if God has touched your heart, would you consider being a part of our Apollos Watered team? We're looking for those to partner with us through prayer and their generosity on a monthly basis to make sure that we are watering people's faith all over the world so that they might water their worlds wherever that is. Go to apolloswater.org and hit the support us icon in the upper right hand corner. And there you can learn how you can partner with us and you will be glad that you did and your parents will be proud. I guarantee it. I also want to give a shout out to our wonderful Apollos Water team, Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Badal, Brian Dana, and the ever learning and growing Kevin O'Brien. Stay watered, everybody. Everybody.